This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. American Ballpark. It's the Better Off Red Podcast. Here's your host, Jamie Ramsey. Hello out there, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Better Off Red Podcast. This is episode 202, and this week we have another great guest for all you Reds fans as General Manager Dick Williams joins us to discuss everything that's going on with the club and what the future holds for the team, its players, and its operations. But first, I'd like to give you an answer to the problem that is plaguing the video gaming community. It's called Re-Indie. Re-Indie is designed in such a way that gives independent developers a chance to show off their games. Re-Indie, that's R-E colon I-N-D-I-E. To remove the roadblocks from gamer and developer, to play games, to have fun, to build a community. Look for Re-Indie on Kickstarter. Follow them on Twitter at ReIndieVG and like them on Facebook.com slash ReIndieVG. He's entering his 12th season in the Reds organization, his second as the club's general manager, and his first as the head man of the Reds baseball operations department. Here's Reds senior vice president and GM, Dick Williams. Okay, we're here with Dick Williams. Dick, thanks for joining us. First, I want to give you a chance to say hello to the Reds fans out there and offer any words to those folks who are looking forward to cheering on the team in 2017 and beyond. Yeah, Jamie, it's a pleasure to be here. I uh, can't believe it took this long to get invited <laughs> to my first podcast. I'll try to uh, make it informative and entertaining so that I will get the pleasure of doing it again sometime. Go easy on me, would you? I absolutely will. Well, we also have some Twitter questions at the end, so I don't know if those folks are going to go easy on you or not. Bring it on. All right. Well, let's get started. You're entering your 12th season, 12 seasons with the Reds. And can you talk a little bit about your growth as a baseball executive during that time? And and what has been the most eye-opening experience so far? And what are you most proud of? Wow, that's a lot to bite off. Um, but, you know, I, I, I have a little bit of a unique background, uh, Jamie. I got into baseball back in 05, end of 05, beginning of 06, um, and really had limited exposure before that in terms of full-time employment you know and most of the guys that work for me um, got into baseball uh, you know at a young age uh, in high school and college they started working summers um, and internships as soon as they got out of school I got my first job when I was 35 in baseball um, so there's some good things about that and some bad things you know I started my learning curve later but I had about 13 years in the business world uh, before I got into baseball. And I think that um, informs a lot of the decisions I make. Um, and it, it taught me a lot about um, the way the business world work. It taught me a lot about analytics. Um, and so I came at baseball from a very different background than a lot of the people 
um, who were working baseball when I arrived. And I think that was a really interesting uh, counterbalance to what we had going on. And um, I think that's why Bob Castellini was comfortable giving me a chance to, to get into baseball operations and really observe. And for the first, you know, three to five years there, I wasn't making a lot of decisions behind the scenes as much as I was understanding what goes into those decisions. And I got a great experience working with people that were um, very patient with me, showing me what uh, the baseball world was all about. Um, but as I began to grow and get confidence in my abilities and applying the knowledge that I had, um, you know, I really think we we started to do some cool stuff. And at the same time, the last 10 years in the baseball world ha have been uh, at an inflection point. You know, the, the, the amount of data and information that's being captured about the on-field performance of players has grown exponentially, like nothing we've ever seen before. I mean, the first hundred years of baseball, uh, the data that we had on all players and all statistics could fit on a thumb drive. You know, now we're getting terabytes of data, um, you know, multiple terabytes of data throughout the season. And it's just exponentially changed the uh, way that we have to um, do business. And so it's been an exciting time to be involved. And I think the next few years um, are going to continue to develop uh, quickly. Yeah, you mentioned analytics and all the information that's out there these days. And I think it's obvious to those who follow this team closely that you appear to be more into analytics than Reds GMs of the past. Uh, is that can you confirm that that's true? And if so, how much value do you still consider scouting? Well, I think, um, you know, it's a little difficult to uh, compare myself um, to the GMs of the past, but I will say that just in my 10 years, what is available has changed so dramatically that I'm not sure my predecessors would have, you know, would have even had cause to look at some of this information, you know, that, that what's developed in the last couple of years through pitch FX and Statcast and all these track man, um, you know, nobody ever uh, had the technology to capture that information before. So we're all sort of learning on the fly. Um, but I do, I do think I came in with a much more open mind because I didn't have that long history. You know, I hadn't been doing it a certain way. So when I got involved, the questions I asked were different from the ones that some of the other uh, GMs are asking. So, um, you know, I, I think I bring my own unique style. And I think uh, we are going to aggressively build our analytics department because, you know, as, as we talked about, the 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 exponential growth will only continue in the next five to 10 years. How's the transition of taking over the baseball operations department now that it's pretty much official that you're, you're the boss. Yeah. You know, it's been real smooth. I I've, if you've looked around the game, you've seen a lot of GMs take over um, in the, in the past few years. I don't, I don't know if, if this is true, but it sure seems like the last couple of years, there's been more turnover than at any one uh, time in, in my memory. Um, and a lot of those new GMs are going to new organizations in new parts of the country with new staffs. And there's a lot that of change that has to happen. And so by comparison, mine's been relatively seamless. You know, I got to stay in my same office and have a lot of the same staff report to me. And, and I was very familiar with the players and, um, you know, that's been nice because, um, uh, it certainly made it uh, an easier transition for us and, and, you know, 
we were able to get on with the business of kind of the off-season moves more quickly. Um, now, you know, that being said, there will be changes. And uh, that's, that's, you know, some are just a matter of the way I approach things, um, you know, and some are, are uh, in reaction to the way the game's evolving. Um, you know, I think, especially with this being a CBA year, you're going to see differences in the way the, the game is played uh, by virtue of rules changes. You know, there could be some pretty significant rules changes, and we're waiting to see what those are. So, um, I, uh, you know, I look forward to the challenge. Walt is not uh, disappearing. He's staying on as an advisor this year and, and next at a minimum. Um, and that's something Bob Castellini wanted to put in place. So it's, um, you know, I, I feel fortunate to have a resource like that. Um, and we've worked together for a number of years, so we have a good sense of what each other brings to the table. And Waltz is invested in the future success of the Reds as anybody. So, you know, I look forward to having him around. Will you hire any more, like, experienced advisors? I know, like, in the past we've had Cam Bonifay and Jerry Walker and folks like that. Do you have any of any names that you that you particularly – have in mind i could see over over time making um some additions you know bringing some new perspectives that's one thing i think we um you know we can always benefit from is every few years we've brought in senior executives from other organizations um you know guys like bill vivese and kevin towers that have uh, sat in the gm chair that have um, you know, worked with other teams and you learn f good things from them and you learn things uh what not to do mm -hmm. uh, from people like that so you know over time we'll 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 do some, you know, we'll probably make some additions. But for now, uh, we've got a very good staff in place um, that I can rely on. And so in the short term, I don't see any uh, major turnover. You're a native Cincinnatian. Does that make it even more special to you personally to see this team succeed? I um, am very fortunate to be uh, the general manager of, the, of a team in the city where I grew up. I, I think that's pretty unique across baseball. I don't know of, of any other examples. Maybe there, maybe there, there are some, but um, I, I'm as passionate about this team as, as any of the fans. Um, you know, I've told the story a few times about uh, jumping on the field after we beat the Pirates in 1990 to go to the World Series. Um, I jumped on the field and ran out and celebrated with the players and <laughs> got in a little bit of trouble. Um, but that's the kind of passion I had for this team. And I've, I've been there for the ups and the downs um, through, the, through the years. And, um, you know, it, I, won't, I will say it's not without its challenges because I did grow up here. So I know a lot of people in this town I have a lot of friends and that puts a, a, a lot of pressure on me um, to succeed. And, you know, I get a lot of questions at cocktail parties, but <laughs> that just comes with the territory. It's uh, it's a great opportunity. I want to point out some of the small victories the Reds have made over the past few years, uh, especially last year after the team went 36 and 37 in the second half of the year in which they got off to a slow start with injuries and things like that. I know that's important to you is to progress but not just year by year, but in season as well. Uh, you did that. Uh, the Reds also, you, you traded some players with value that wouldn't be here for the next window of success, but you got young talent in return. You turned less than eight years of player seasons into potentially 90 plus years of player seasons of under contract players, which is incredibly significant. And then you really turned up the focus on amateurs since 2005. Can you talk a little bit about those three things that you've done, uh, starting with the success in season? 
Sure. Uh, we, you know, we set out last year with, with a handful of goals, as I, as I told, um, I think it was Trent and Zach uh, at the beginning of the year from the Enquirer, and they wrote a nice article right around opening day about our plans for the season. And, you know, we were realistic about our goals. You have to start with your long-term and short-term goals. And our long-term goal is to win a World Series. Um, our short-term goal is to put ourselves in position to do that. And to, to get there, uh, we had to do a, a couple of things. One was, you know, spend a couple of years there trading away players that were not going to be with us for the next window of success. And that would free up payroll for the future generations and also bring back young players. Um, we also uh, needed to ramp up our investment in uh, amateur player acquisitions, both domestically and internationally. We also needed to make a significant step forward in investing in our baseball operations infrastructure, the technology, the sports science, the analytics. Um, and finally, you know, one of my goals for last year was to see improvement from the team. And we did that, um, as you mentioned. You know, the first half was really painful for everybody. Um, but that was a function of the fact that we, um, you know, we, we started the season with a lot of injuries. Plus, we had traded away, you know, some key players. And... The young guys were not ready yet to come up and fill those holes. Um, as the season went on, we got players healthy. Uh, we got some young players that started to contribute a little better. You remember Praz and Shevler, the first time up, they weren't weren't as effective. They went down, they came back up, and then they were much more effective. Um, you know, with Cody Reed and some of those other guys, it, it, we'll see the same cycle. They'll come up, they'll stub their toe, uh, they'll continue the development process, and then hopefully take it to the next level. But it was nice to see that improvement on the field in the second half. You know, for, for having a losing season last year, um, I can't emphasize enough that the, the year as a whole was a really positive one for the organization. We made a lot of positive changes um, investing in our infrastructure, and we had a tremendous year in terms of uh, uh, acquiring young player talent for the future. So it was a, it was a really good year in terms of building a foundation for the future. One of the things I know you speak of is that success in baseball, like the success cycles are inevitable. What do you mean by that? Well, I don't, I, I don't think you, you ever see any team, no matter how big a market or small a market they're in, um, stay on the top of the pile for forever. Um, it's just the nature of this sport. Um, there's, some, there's some rules in place to, to create parity over time. Um, and the sport is so inherently unpredictable. Um, you can do all the things right and put all the right players on, on the field, and uh, sometimes things just don't go your way. So it's really hard for one team to stay up or stay down for too long. Um, but you better be prepared for both ends of the spectrum um, because they're going to they're gonna come. And since I've been here in the 10 years, uh, we've been – you know, we've been to both. We've been at both ends. We when we got here in 06, 07, things were pretty rough. Our our minor league system was was rated very low. Um, our performance at the big league level wasn't uh, as competitive as we wanted it to be. Um, and over the next few years, as we built up that minor league system, and then those players graduated, we really saw ourselves um, back on top. And for a small market team, there that run of 2010 to 2013, three playoff appearances in four years. Um, you know, we were one of the best teams in baseball in that period in terms of getting the most production out of the least amount of, uh, you know, payroll. Uh, and that's something we were very, very proud of. Um, but we 
to keep extending that window of success was very challenging. In 14 and 15, we kept our payrolls high. Um, you know, we were investing in sort of that older free agent talent, trying to trying to keep our core together. And it just didn't work. You know, we had to finally acknowledge that it was time to trade off pieces and, and try to do it again. There are no guarantees in this business, but the recipe is proven that, that if you build it from within and you strengthen that minor league system, good things should follow at the major league level. I know Major League Baseball would like its fans to think, and we talked a little bit about it, about parity. Um, I think baseball would like for its fans to think that everybody's on an even playing field, but I think it would be naive to still consider that to be so, uh, given that, you know, the Cubs, which it's a great story this year, but, you know, they they wallowed in uh, in the the lower division for several years in which they got many draft picks, but they also had uh, an incredible amount of payroll at their disposal. Do you still think that's a, I don't want to say a problem, but an issue in baseball? Well, I think it would be a lot of fun if we all had the same amount to spend each year. That would really um, separate teams. But that's not the way it is. That's not the way it's going to be. And and to be honest, I think there's something to be said for um, you know the big market teams having a lot of money. They've got they've got a lot of fans. They've earned a lot of um, money to go out and spend. And, and so, you know, they want it to be that way. And maybe there's something to the David and Goliath story that's attractive uh, to fans. Um, you know, we certainly um, understand our, our place in the, in the spectrum of big and small market teams, but we've shown that we can get there. And so we don't want to use it as an excuse, but we better be self-aware of where we fit so that we can um, plan accordingly. Um, you know, we're not going to go into each offseason just looking to sign free agents. That's not the way our business model is. And this past year, you know, when the bullpen was struggling, we could have spent money on bullpen help. Um, but that wasn't going to get us back to where we needed to get in a few years. That money was better spent on the draft mm-hmm. and on the Cubans that we signed. So, you know, in terms of the uh, financial disparity, we just we just need to do what we can do with our with our resources and um, that starts with building scouting and player development. Is it set up now where teams like the Reds, their window of opportunity takes place in the first six years of a, of a young player's career? For example, the players that we have now that are still, you know, that are still under, our, under the Reds' control. Is that how baseball is starting to, especially if small market teams like the Reds? It is. That for people that don't understand the economics, um, you know, essentially the first six years of a player's major league career are controlled by the team that drafted and developed him. His Those first three years, he makes the major league minimum salary, which isn't all that minimum to those of us in the real world. But um, And then for three more years, he goes through an arbitration process where he gets raises according to his performance, but still discounted salaries versus what he would probably get out in the free agent marketplace. Once he reaches six years, if we haven't signed him long-term, that player's free to go out into the marketplace and, and, uh, and go sign with the highest bidder. So it, we do have to have a high percentage of players in the first six years of their career on our roster at a given time. We simply couldn't afford to build a roster of 25 free agents it doesn't work that way Mm -hmm. um now you know as a small market team 
we'll have to have an even higher percentage than some of the other big market teams. Um, and we're comfortable doing that, but it does come with risk. You know, mm-hmm. there's no guarantee that just because a player's young and under control, he's going to perform. You know, and we've seen that um, while young players, a lot of times now they're coming up, they're, they're, they are performing at a high level early in their career. Um, you know, there's nothing to say a player's not going to get better after he's been in the league for six years. You know, you look at someone like Edwin Encarnacion, um, who bounced around after he left us and was basically sure. unsigned, mm-hmm. you know, before he got um, his extension in Toronto and then really kind of took off as an offensive force. Um, so some players do develop uh, later in their uh, careers. So, you know, we just have to uh, have a healthy mix of yeah. of the right kind of young players and uh, the veterans. You know, you bring in a guy like Scott Rowland at the right time, and it could be the perfect ingredient um, for success. You know, we're probably not in that mode right now of looking for the, the role and the finishing touch, but, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years we will be. Yeah, and that goes back to my previous question to me, what you just said there. It just seems like it's not – I think it's too strong to say it's not fair, but it, it definitely puts an onus on these teams like the Reds that have to really be good and sharp where there's, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of room for a team like the Cubs or the Yankees not to – they can, you know, not want to say rest on their laurels, but, you know, miss a well, draft the way I said, they might be able to – they might be able to afford a few more mistakes because yeah. they can they can use cash to make up for it mm-hmm. a lot of times and we can't always afford to make as many uh, mistakes we t- you talked about just then about the uh, the fact that the players have a 6 year they're under the control for the the team for 6 years does that also play a part on the front end of these young guys careers that you don't want to bring them up too early to start the clock as they say and can you explain a little bit to to the layman that about what starting the clock means? Yeah, sure. Well, they they track players' major league service. But effectively, it's by days. So every day you're in the big leagues, um, you know, is is accruing to your benefit and and taking you towards that six year threshold when you get to be a free agent. Um, I think it's important to note that you you have to be careful about starting the clock, um, particularly on a young player because you don't want to burn a lot of that time before they are contributing because you only have a set amount of time that you're going to have that player. You know, obviously the later you start that clock, um, the better. Now that's, you have to balance that against, you know, how important it is to bring a player up and to get him experience um, and to get him days in the big leagues, to get him comfortable. So it's really more an art than a science as to when, um, it makes sense for a given player to, to make his debut. Um, but you see a lot of cases in the big leagues of players that, that might make their debut at 20, 21, 22. And then by a young age, they're out of options. They, they might be, um, you know, earning their free agency at a, at a really young age. And, and it's the next team that's going to get the benefit of their services more than the first team. So, you know, we definitely take into account very much a player's age um, and service time when we think about what's the appropriate time to bring them up. The 2016 Reg draft was ranked by Baseball America as the best in baseball. That's got to be a feather in your cap. And how excited are you about that? And is it something that we could also expect in 2017 with the Reds also having the, the number two pick again? Well, I was I was really thrilled to see Baseball America felt 
uh, that way because it was some external validation. We don't always agree with the way they rank our prospects <laughs> or our farm system. You know, it's very subjective. Sure. So, you know, I'm not going to hang my hat on it, but it was very nice to, to receive some external validation. What was important to us was we felt like we killed it in the draft. We just felt really good. And that was before we added TJ Friedel kind of mm -hmm. after the fact, who mm -hmm. was an undrafted free agent that we signed, um, basically adding another top pick to our draft class. So we just felt really good about our, our draft class. And like I mentioned before, when you have good draft classes and your farm system gets really strong, that's a very positive indicator of good things to come in the, in the later years at your big league level. So um, anything we can do to get talent into the system is going to help us all in the future. And this was a big year for getting talent. And we'll talk a, a, a little bit about some of the guys that the Reds acquired in that draft. But first, let's talk about the, the young Cuban stars that the Reds signed in the offseason, namely Alfredo Rodriguez, who's a shortstop, and Vladimir Gutierrez, who's a right-handed pitcher. Yeah, this was the first time in a while that we added two significant international signings in a, in a given year. And we felt so strongly about the opportunity to add these guys that we actually went over our allotted um, spending pool. You know, baseball gives us each a, an amount to us, each team an amount to spend each year. And, and I, uh, um, we're supposed to play by the rules. Usually we play by the rules, um, but it made a lot of sense for us to go out on a limb and sign these two players and go past our spending limit, which which means for the next couple seasons we'll have limitations on what we can do internationally. But for us, we felt like the trade-off made sense. And to be, you know, to be candid, a lot of teams have made that same decision in the mm -hmm. last few years, and it's why I think you'll see a, a dramatic change in the international uh, amateur signing rules going forward. But we added Alfredo Rodriguez, who our scouts think is a you know, major league-ready shortstop defensively, um, very quickly and uh, it's not very often that you get to add that kind of talent now a few years ago you had at the top of the draft Dansby Swanson Alex Bregman you had a lot of short stops right up there at the top um, this past year in 2016 you didn't have any short stops anywhere near the top so even though we were drafting high there was there was no opportunity to add a short stop with our with our draft picks and so to be able to complement what was already a really good draft class with a with a mature um, a Cuban player like this who has experience playing in professional leagues at the highest level in Cuba, you know, it was, it was, a, was great for us. Now, um, you know, the, the knock on him was the offense. Mm -hmm. um, our scouts uh, think that uh, Alfredo's continued to get stronger and develop as an offensive player um, in the time since he was playing in the Cuban leagues. You know, he's been out of – while he was um, – you know, while he was leaving Cuba and coming over to the States, there was a period there where a long period where he wasn't playing, but he was continuing to develop physically. So we got to look at him in this fall league, a uh, little bit in our Dominican summer league, and then in our fall league out in Arizona. And, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see uh, the offense develop. Um, if he does develop as an offensive player, you got to, you know, we've got, we've got a heck of a, a player on our hands, mm -hmm. uh, but we think his floor is, is a very effective, uh, you know, defensive shortstop um, and then we added Vladimir Gutierrez um, little little smaller signing bonus uh, but significant nonetheless um, you know kind of a signing bonus that would have put him in the first second round of, of the domestic draft mm -hmm. um, a, a player that that pitched 
you know, at the same level in the Cuban leagues and around the same times as, as uh, Rysel Iglesias and uh, arguably with even more success statistically. Um, but a similar profile, kind of a, a little bit smaller right-hander, real quick arm, a um, lot of pitches. He pitched mostly as a reliever. You know, we think we'll, we'll, we'll probably make him a starter um, in the minor leagues. Uh, we think that's an effective way to develop a guy so they has to use more of his pitches. And then we'll see where he ends up in the big leagues, but we think he'll come pretty quick. In addition to Alfredo Rodriguez, the Reds have uh, recently stockpiled the middle infield position with guys like Dilson Herrera, who came over in the Jay Bruce trade. There's a young man named Blake Trahan who's in the uh, in the minor league system that a lot of our I know a lot of our coaches personally are, are high on him. Of course, Brandon Dixon's having some success in the Arizona Fall League, and of course Jose Peraza, who who came on. Uh, like gangbusters for the Reds when he came back up. Those are all considered the cream of the crop for the Reds' middle infield. That's a pretty good problem to have, wouldn't you say, Dick? It is. The The middle of the field is obviously, you know, one is, is important to us. And, um, you know, so you, you want to have depth there. You want to have options. You want to have uh, more than enough. And um, I think we've got some good young players. We really need to see what we've got. Uh, both Dilson and Jose are still extremely young when you think about it. Um, and they've both already been in the big leagues over a period of a couple years. Um, so, you know, this year we've got to get them some playing time. Um, you know, I think in particular Peraza has shown the flexibility to play multiple spots. Uh, we saw him in the outfield last year. We've seen him at second and short. We didn't see his best work in the outfield last year, but to be honest, he, he, we were moving him around at, at a pretty quick pace. And when he was sent back down to AAA, um, you know, he didn't get to work out in center as much as we had uh, hoped. And then and then we kind of forced him into that role. But I think he can be a, a better center fielder than what we saw. Um, and it's that's kind of the wave of the future for some of these players is to, um, you know, sh- show flexibility, positional flexibility, gives the manager an, another weapon. Uh, to use when you're able to move move around spots, um, but uh, per, you know Peraza is a great shortstop, and uh, he got moved off of there uh, in the Braves system not because of his shortcomings, but because he was blocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, you know, it's a credit to him to be able to become that proficient at second, um, and also be able to run around the outfield the way he does. But we we feel real good about some of those exciting young guys coming up. Do you see Peraza as a shortstop? I do. Um, I think. There's a you know a decent chance we'll give him some playing time there this year. Um, you know a lot depends on what uh, ends up happening with Zach. You know obviously right now uh, we've got a pretty good shortstop um, who's got one year left on his contract. Um, so you know Jose could play behind him at, at short, um, could play behind Brandon at second, could play behind Billy at, in center, and you know you could piece together a lot of at bats um, by moving him around. Uh, the diamond or if something ends up happening with any one of those players where they're injured or traded then you know I think he could step in um, but we do see him we in our look last year you know our, our our club was able to win with him at shortstop staying with the the Reds farmhands and and the up-and-comers Nick Senzel was the first rounder the Reds acquired second overall in the 2016 draft he's considered one of the top Reds prospects closest to the major leagues that's an exciting thought. However, what would that mean for another young up-and-comer who we saw a lot of in Eugenio Suarez? 
Well, like when I was talking about up the middle players, again, you can never have too much depth at any one position because you don't know how these players are going to continue developing. You don't know what's in store in terms of player health. Um, what makes Suarez valuable is that, um, you know, I also think he has positional versatility. Remember, he was a shortstop. Mm-hmm. You know, he played a pretty good shortstop for us. And then when we traded Todd, we moved him over there. And, um, you know, he ended up a pretty good third baseman for for having done it for the first time in the big leagues and having to learn on the fly. You know, I think, um, you know, his error total ended up higher than anybody would have liked, um, but it was not out of line for someone that was learning the position um, at the big league level like that. And he definitely showed the athleticism to be able to play it. But I think in, in Suarez, you've got a guy that can play left field, that can play third, that can play shortstop. You know, he's got that positional flexibility. Um, Nick Senzel was a guy that played primarily third at Tennessee, but he also filled in at shortstop for a decent amount of the season there. Um, when their short, when their starter went down, he, he moved over. So, uh, you know, these guys will let it sort itself out. Mm-hmm. Nick, Nick's probably going to start the year. You know, he finished in Dayton. He'll probably start the year in high A, maybe double A, but probably high A with a, with a quick move as a possibility. Um, and so there's still, there's still plenty of time for him to figure it out in the minor leagues where he's going to fit best and where Suarez will be when, when Nick arrives. Reds fans should be excited about Senzel, right? This guy's he's legit. He's the real deal. Well, he you know, he's he's one of those guys that was relatively unheralded out of high school. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't one of those prospects that everybody knew about for 10 years. Um, he was a little bit of a, a later arrival. He got to Tennessee and really made a name for himself. Um uh, you know, he was a complete player, uh, very good offensive approach, um, very good defensive player, a, a better base runner than I think people thought at first. Um, and uh, his coach just spoke very highly of his leadership ability, the intangibles. Uh, if you get to know Nick, he's a he, he's all business. Uh, he's all baseball. He really cares about uh, his craft. And I just think we've got a really uh, special player there. Um, but he's got to continue to, to develop, you know, and, and face the competition at these higher levels. And, you know, we're, we're as excited about him as, as anybody, but, um, you know, we recognize that it's still a process. You got to push these guys. You got to let them, you got to let them fail a little bit, and then you got to let them come back stronger. You mentioned intangibles as a, as a guy who's, uh, kind of building up the analytics department in the baseball operations world. How important are the intangibles to you? Very, um, you know, we can from from the analytics we can look at um, you know a player's physical ability. We can see how they perform, and and we can parse you know what situations they're likely to be more successful in, um, and that can tell you a lot about a player. Uh, but the off the field, the intangibles, the leadership, the mental skills, the awareness, those are all just as important to us um, as evidenced by the players that we've. Um, tried to acquire in recent years this year in particular um, between Nick and then Taylor Trammell Mm -hmm. and Chris Oakey uh, you have three players that are you know very much um, uh, type A type personalities leadership type personalities Chris Oakey was the 
you know, the starting catcher on the under 16 team USA, then again on the 18 and under team, and then again on the college national team, you know, and you don't get to be that guy, Mm -hmm. that quarterback on the field at all those different levels, unless you've got a really special something. Um, And I think Taylor Trammell is another guy that that's got it. You know, this, here was a kid who was, um, whose parents are engineers. He was going to go to Georgia tech Mm -hmm. on a scholarship, Um, an excellent student, uh, all state football player in a in a state like Georgia, um, you know, and a and a proficient baseball player, and I think this guy is going to be, um, you know, just a tremendous mental, um, have a tremendous mental advantage on the field, um, and is also uh, a really good worker. asks a lot of questions and is going to grow into his own as a leader as well. And some of these minor league guys, did I read right that some of these guys were going to send them to West Point? Yeah, this is something that uh, we've been thinking about for a little while. This was very important to me, and I talked to Jeff Grappi, our player development director, about it um, over the course of the past summer. And, you know, having witnessed firsthand the impact that Scott Rowland had when he came here to the Reds and, you know, his, his leadership abilities and what that meant for the organization, you know, what I asked Jeff was why can't we do everything in our power to develop those type of players you know we were fortunate to have some great players come through this system um adam dunn jay bruce joey vado frazier cozart you know meseraco these guys have come up through our system and um and we were fortunate enough that they all were leaders in their own right and, mm-hmm. and successful players at the big league level but you know i felt like we failed them a little bit by not giving them even more resources mm-hmm. um to develop uh that part of their game and so I challenged Jeff to look for a program that would enable us to do that. Um, and, you know, whatever it would cost, you know, I, I promised him that I would go to Mr. Castellini for the resources to make it happen. And, and he happened, he, he investigated several programs. Uh, the one he found was run by Thayer Leadership Development Group, and it's through West Point. Um, so we sent a dozen players up there, mm. and it was about a three-day program. Um, and they just got back not too long ago. And I heard from, from several of them um, just how, uh, how grateful they were for the opportunity, how impactful it was on them. Um, and I really think it's going to give them a head start on developing their personal skills. Not just that, but we made a point of uh, sending players, recently drafted high school player like Taylor Trammell, mm-hmm. Um, all the way up to a guy like Jesse Winker that's on the cusp of the big leagues. Um, so you had AAA guys interacting with rookie-level guys. Mm-hmm. And I think when they come into spring training, that group is going to have a really special bond across levels. And that's something we haven't seen in the past and we want to promote more of. So I, I think we'll definitely uh, do that program again next year or something very similar, and we'll probably build on it and do other stuff uh, throughout the year. But that was a um, you know, we were really pleased with the way the first first one came off. Good. So you sent about, about 12 players, you said? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about Joey Votto. Do you have a favorite Joey stat or tidbit, maybe a scouting report or anecdote that really puts into perspective how great of a hitter this guy is? Oh, you're, you're <laughs> catching me off guard a little bit with that one. Um, but, you know, Joey's Joey's Joey. And, and when you read the articles about him, they give you all these different um, you know, statistics. And every time you see one, you're like, Oh my God, I didn't, yeah. I didn't realize that. But um, I think this year was, um, 
you know, was really fascinating to watch in terms of uh, Joey's resiliency um, and watching how he reacted in the face of adversity. Um, you know, obviously the first uh, month and a half of the season didn't go the way, you know, he wanted or expected. Um, and, you know, Joey just buckled down mm -hmm. and he didn't make, uh, you know, a dramatic shift in his pr approach. He never panicked. Um, you know, it was really fascinating. He just kept saying, I will get better. You know, you will see the Joey that you're used to seeing. And, um, you know, I think what he put together for this, for the latter two thirds of the season was, was probably, you know, one of the best, um, runs he's ever had in, in, in a, what is already a pretty good career. Um, and I just hope that that carries over into next season. Cause if he ever did that, um, you know, for a full season, uh, he'd have another one of those MVP trophies to, uh, take home. So, you know, Joey's what I, this year, one of the fun things to watch was, um, you know, him working with some of the younger players. Uh, he doesn't ask for attention. Um, he doesn't seek it out. Um, but I, I know from, from being behind the scenes, uh, that he does have a big impact on some of the younger players. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a handful of them in particular that, that, um, you know, really sort of studied, under him this year and i i think he was a big part of of their success yeah i think one of the guys you could probably name was billy hamilton i know it was documented in the papers and and that things but you know i saw it too and i'm sure you saw it that billy was really kind of his pupil there for a, or still is that he's learning and i think you could see that billy improved after i don't want to say it was joey that improved him but it helps having a guy like that to learn from. Yeah, anytime you've got young players willing to seek out advice, you know, not not to put it all on Joey. He's not sure. the only one mm -hmm. that can help these guys. They've they've really got to want to help themselves first. And I think Joey, um, in my experience, he's very aware of that. You know, he's not you – know, these these guys have to want it for themselves. Right. Uh, they can't just come spend a little time with Joey and, and then, uh, you know, presto, they become a better offensive player you know, the work for Billy started last off season and he made a commitment to come here to Cincinnati in the winter um, and work out downstairs with Billy Hatcher and really take his physical uh, development to the next level. So he was down there with Sean Marone, our strength and conditioning coach, Billy Hatcher, our outfield coach. And, and he was doing a lot of work um, to get in better shape uh, for the season. And so I think that physical foundation that he laid – um, played as big a part as anything in his success. And I know he's going to replicate it this year. Um, and I've already talked to some of the other young outfielders that are coming up, going to be trying to make the team uh, for the first time. And, and, you know, they're hoping to come in this winter now and maybe maybe learn from Billy. So yeah. maybe now Billy will be, you know, teaching, yeah. teaching young guys and passing it on. Uh, back to Joey. Have you spoken to him about what his thoughts are on the direction of the team? Um, I've had some conversation about Joey, you know, he's he, uh, with Joey, he's, he's, uh, a player that really studies the game. Um, he's, a, he's aware of, um, you know, what it takes to put a successful team on the field. Um, and he really cares. And so, you know, from time to time, I'll, I'll ask his opinion on things. Um, you know, during, during, at this point in the off season, you know, I'm really trying to let him have his space mm -hmm. um, and prepare himself as a player and not try to bother him with, uh, you know, questions about the team or observations. But, you know, we did have a couple nice conversations, um, 
you know, in the, in the second half of the season on the road where I just got to sit down with him and, you know, hear in his own words kind of what he sees for himself and his development, his future, and, um, you know, what, what he likes about the team and doesn't like. And so, you know, we've, we've had some he, – he's given some good feedback there, but, um, you know, Joe, Joey's uh, – you know, he's got a, a quiet and determined personality. And um, he cares very deeply about, you know, developing himself as a player. And, and I, I, I hope that rubs off on other people because, um, you know, before you can start worrying about the team or the, or the competition, you know, it all starts with just taking care of yourself mm-hmm. um, as a player. And I think that's uh, an example that Joey sets pretty well for our guys. What do you say we get to some Twitter questions? Oh, I can't wait to see what you've got <laughs> up your sleeve for me. <laughs> All right. Well, I put out a, uh, a bulletin on Twitter asking for some questions for you. I know a lot of people out there don't really get the opportunity to, uh, to ask these questions or get these questions answered, but we're giving them one now. Uh, this one's from Colt. What organization, if any, are the Reds trying to emulate in terms of roster construction? Well, you know, I hope we never get labeled as a copycat team because, uh, you know, I think we have a lot of our own ideas and we're trying to be the Reds. And, you know, I, I read a quote the other day from Jed Hoyer over at the Cubs and he said some really nice things about, you know, there's some smart people over there at the Reds and they're doing the right thing and they're going to be nipping our heels. But one thing he said in there that bugged me a little bit was he said <laughs> something like the Reds are copycatting the Cubs. And, you know, I feel like nobody's really got a, um, a copyright on the formula for building a successful franchise. And, you know, from 2010 to 2014, um, you know, our record against the Cubs was something like 60, 62 and 28 or something. I mean, we, you know, we had a tremendous winning percentage against the Cubs and, and we were doing it. So I would argue that the Cubs went out and copycatted my <laughs> successful, you know, Walt's successful formula yeah. from a few years ago. That's right. Um, but we do, you know, in terms of the roster construction, um, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier. I would like to emphasize flexibility and athleticism and get away from the historical sort of uh, eight starters and the bench guys. You know, I think an extreme example was the Big Red Machine where they talked about the grade eight and then the turds on the bench, yeah, you know, their right. term, not mine. I right. wouldn't call them, <laughs> but, um, you know, getting away from like your bench being like a, a big lumbering home run hitter, um, that you bring in, you know, once a game to pinch hit, and then the little speedy defender that, you know, you, you steal a base with and, and in moving more towards, uh, uh, a group of 12 or 13 position players, any mix of whom could start on a given day, um, so that you can, you can give your manager the flexibility to go more right-handed heavy or more left-handed heavy or, or seek matchups as, as, as he wants to do on a given day or maybe play a better outfield defense on a certain day and the next day play a more offensive um, uh, outfield. Uh, and that's, that's our goal going forward. John's going to put you on the spot here. He asks, when is your realistic time frame for the Reds to be real contenders for a World Series win? A real contender as opposed to a pretend contender. <laughs> a, pr- a pretender, I guess. <laughs> um, well, you know, that is that is a tough question, and I, I don't want to dodge it, but I'll, 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 all I can say is it depends on the pace of development of our young players. I certainly feel like we are getting impact talent into the organization. We've got a real nice depth of young 
pitching talent, um, you know, with, with the guys that are up already, like De Scalfani and Finnegan, and then the group that's coming, like Stevenson and Reed and, and Garrett and Romano and Travieso and Adelman, and you, know, you just go on and on, and there's just a, such a nice young group of, of potential, and that's what it is right now, and it depends on how fast that develops. Um, but if those guys uh, do their job, then, you know, we'll be back. We'll be back sooner than people think. Randy asks about the status of Brandon Phillips. Um, well, Brandon is, uh, you know, under contract for one more year uh, with the Reds. And, you know, he's made no secret about the fact that he loves it here. And he's, um, he's you know, got full no-trade protection. Um, so for him to go anywhere, that, that's, that stance of his would have to change. And uh, right now, you know, based on my conversations with him, he just you know, he really loves it here. He wants to play here. He knows it's his last opportunity to play in front of Reds fans. Um, you know, and I think that's what he wants to do. Um, now, you know, hopefully if he's here for this next year, he will be a part of developing, you know, those young middle infielders that we talked about being a part of, their, of our future because that's, that's a necessary next step for us. And if Brandon's going to be here, that's something that, you know, I would expect him to be a part of. Jeff asked, the White Sox took the one and two on base percentage player in the in NCAA baseball in the draft. How much do stats factor into the draft? Um, more than ever before. You, you're seeing more statistical analysis on uh, college and high school players. Honestly, one of the limitations was the data just didn't exist in very reliable form up until a few years ago you just couldn't get good statistics um, on young amateur players now you are there people are capturing that data and you're even getting you know split data so we've been buying the college splits data for for years now and and making sure we look at that we're getting a lot of video on these players and um, uh, you know I just think that uh, we're getting more and more information at the end of the day um, it's it's just a piece of the puzzle. Um, we have a very good scouting department uh, run by Chris Buckley, who's been here since I got here um, back in 06. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we rely much more on the scouts. Um, but Chris is a is he, when he comes in for the final two weeks before the draft, every player that we discuss, um, he asks the stat guys what they have on him mm -hmm. so it's very much a, a front of mind for him chris asks if a veteran catcher might be signed to provide more depth even on a minor league contract oh uh, yeah i think for sure we need depth in our catching so we'll be we'll be looking i wouldn't expect a big dollar frontline guy i would expect exactly what chris described there kind of a depth guy to protect us in case Devin has any setbacks one more from colt why would the Reds invest in short-term bullpen help if still in rebuilding for long-term? Isn't that counterintuitive? Uh, not really. I mean, it depends on what kind of bullpen help you're going out and getting. You know, this year, uh, if we were to sign bullpen help, it would be to protect and promote the development of the young guys. You know, we need numbers in the pen. Um, if Iglesias and Lorenzen end up there, which is there's a decent chance just based on um, – you know, the discussions I've had with the doctors and with the coaching staff and, and where we're headed. You know, Iglesias, Lorenzen, perhaps Jumbo, Woods, Singrani. Um, 
you know, not sure who else will be coming back out of that pen. You know, that's only five guys. You need you need ten, yeah, um, including the depth. And so we've got to have numbers there now. You know, people will ask, well, what about shifting a guy? Um, some of those uh, young players, if they don't get the start fifth mm-hmm. starting spot, you know, that's possible. There may be a guy that that we decide is it's appropriate to shift him to the bullpen. But I, um, I like. You know, if they look good as starters, I'd like to keep them as starters. They're mm-hmm. more valuable as starters. Um, so, you know, I think it's very likely that we'll add some bullpen help. But, you know, it probably won't be three-year contract, four-year contract type help. Um, it'll be more of the one-year stopgap, um, you know, try to try to give us innings to protect our young guys. Yeah, I think a lot of folks, uh, and, you know, we'll, I'll be honest, a lot of, a lot of this, you know, backlash happened at the beginning of last year when they saw guys that were coming up and getting innings in the bullpen and maybe getting their brains beat in. But I think that gets lost on the common fan is that you have to have innings from these guys. Absolutely. It takes a lot to get through a season, you know, and if you, um, especially if you're bringing up young starters and breaking them into the big leagues, which is a possibility for us this year, um, you know, you, you've got a plan on that. Um, and, and that means probably relying a little more heavily on your bullpen than otherwise. So you've just got to make sure that there's guys there that, uh, you know, can throw multiple innings. We've talked about it being a, a point of focus for player development going forward, making sure that, you know, even in the minor league levels, those relievers are, are throwing as much as possible. You know, you, you don't want to, you don't want to create a lot of, uh, one inning guys. Yeah. Um, you know, that may be where they end up at, at the end of the day in the big leagues. Um, but in terms of development, you know, the more uh, they can throw, the better. And obviously this postseason that became sort of the one of the most talked about yeah. uh, phenomenon. Right. You know, something we've been talking about and emphasizing for the last year. You sure. know, earlier in the season, we put Iglesias and Lorenzen in that multi-inning role. And you, you weren't hearing a lot about it. And by the end of the season, it's it's like almost every team now has to have one. <laughs> I don't think we started the trend. There were other teams that, you know, that were very much aware of it. But the uh, the awareness of the casual casual fan has gone up a yeah. lot. If I may sneak another one in, do you see that trending in baseball differently, the way teams use their bullpen? And like, like you mentioned in, in the postseason, we saw guys – the best reliever come in sixth, seventh inning in the most important situations of the game. Do you see it going that way? And if you do, how much backlash are you going to get from like agents who want their closers to, you know, get these saves and, and statistically pad their, their resumes? Yeah, we, it's a good question. We'll have to see how it unfolds. I definitely think that, um, you know, there is an evolution in the way teams are thinking. Um, I think some will definitely get away from that notion of the one uh, ninth inning closer. Um, there are a bunch of teams that will never get away from that. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. But I do think there'll be a trend uh, towards more of the multi-inning reliever. Um, and I think that slowly but surely will adapt to coming up with ways to measure the value of those players. Um, the compensation system... You know, for for arbitration, when a player's in his arbitration years, is largely based on statistics like holds and saves, mm-hmm. or for an offensive player, um, home runs and RBIs, and and those are sort of old school. But nowadays, when you're a free agent, 
you know, I think teams are savvy enough to value the player, um, you know, based on the whole package. Yeah. And so I think for free agent negotiations, you're still the best pitchers are going to get the most money, whether they have the most saves or not. Alan wants to know your thoughts on the outfield situation. You have Duvall, Hamilton, Shebler, Wink, Winker, also who replaces DeJesus as a super sub. Um, well, what I like about our, our outfield right now is it's balanced. You've got um, a couple of right-handed hitters in Selsky and Duvall, and you got a couple of left-handed hitters, you know, potentially in Winker and Shebler. If those guys, you know, if that ends up being your starting outfield, I think we'll also throw some other guys in the mix. You know, hopefully bring some guys to into the competition. You know, Irvin will be there in the spring, and um, potentially some some free agent candidates as well. How about Aquino? Would he get a? You think he'll yeah, get an Aquino invite? will be there. He'll be in the mix. He, you know, he's young. He was the MVP of the league in High A last year. Certainly ready um, to move up. He looks like you know one of our highest upside young prospects. Um, you know, I I, I think it'd be a real challenge for him to break camp with the team this year, but I look forward to him, you know, getting around the big league guys, being in camp and, and showing what he can do. You know, you got Billy out there obviously as a switch hitter. So right now we have a good mix of, you know, players that you can, um, you know, that you can mix up and, and Brian can come up with all sorts of different combinations and ways to play those guys. So, uh, you know, I like the outfield, but at the end of the day for, for Shebler and, and Duvall in particular, you know, this is a chance for them to show whether or not they can hold down, you know, an everyday job. Um, you know, obviously, um, Adam uh, did that in the first half last year, and the second half was good. It just wasn't as good. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that's the way the league works. Sure. You're good, then they adjust to you. You don't look so good. Can you adjust back? Mm-hmm. Can you get back to where you were, or are you going to let the league figure you out and hold you down? And so Adam and Scott, you know, have an opportunity to, you know, build on what they did last year. Um, it was really the first time they'd gotten significant playing time at the at the big league level. And um, if those guys continue developing, and um, you know some of these other guys, Winker and Selsky or Irvin or whoever, come up, you know, it, it could get real exciting in that outfield. This one's from Wick. He mentions, and we talked about this a little bit earlier. This postseason with the Dodgers and Cubs specifically capitalizing on the ability to move guys around the diamond to allow managers to exploit matchups. Is there an increased emphasis on building versatility to this Reds roster moving forward? And he cites Duvall, Peraza, and Suarez as examples. Yeah, there is. And, and um, you know, I talked to the Major League coaching staff at the end of the season before everybody went home and and talked about them communicating with our players about how important it was to keep proficient at multiple positions you know obviously Duvall found a home in left field but this guy was a really good third baseman Mm -hmm. he's played first base if he can continue to do that you know then you've got your then you've got a contingency plan if something happens to one of those guys same with uh, Suarez if he can continue to be proficient at short go go catch some balls in the outfield so that he can play left if in a pinch um you know, for Peraza to continue to work on both sides of the bag, second and short, um, you know, I think that's important. That's why we liked um, Arzmendi Alcantara, who we claimed on waivers. You know, this is a guy that was a former top prospect. He's had some injury issues. He hasn't hit a ton. We think there's a lot of upside in there when he gets healthy. Um, but, you know, he's played second. He's played short. He's played third. He's played a bunch of outfield positions. You know, those kind of guys are uh, very valuable. 
John wants to know, what are some of the differences between you and Walt Jockety? Are we going to notice differences in how the team is run? You mean other than our hair? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think um, I think there there are some differences. You know, I you know I'd like to think that the push into the rebuild, you know, that was something that I brought to the table. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, really pushing hard on Bob to to consider those trades and begin the rebuild process. You know, I think a lot of the the differences and the changes that I might bring may not be visible to the casual fan right away. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff. We talked about the investment in technology and sports science, you know, growing the analytics staff, buying them the hardware and software they need to get their job done. You know, I created the sports science department with Charles Ledden. Now this year we're going to get into some areas like biomechanical analysis, cognitive training, um, you know, rest and recovery. Um, we're buying, um, you know, we're investing in, in medical technology to help our players um, at the at the minor league level. There's the leadership development. We're going to uh, make a, a very significant new investment in uh, nutrition, health and performance for minor league players, sleep studies. Uh, we're adding coaches in the minor league levels. Um, we are uh, creating a Pacific Rim scouting infrastructure for the first time. Uh, we're adding scouts in Latin America. We're adding uh, amateur scouts domestically. So there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that I don't think, um, you know, the fans will see uh, in the short term, but I'm, I'm hoping they'll see the effects of in the years to come. Yeah, all the stuff that you mentioned, you're right. That's not exactly, uh, you know, information privy to the casual fans. So that's good to, good to know that all these – programs are being implemented and all this technology is being brought into the Reds organization that they never had before. I bet you're excited about that. It's a really uh, interesting time. <laughs> and I think Reds fans should be excited. Um, you know, we've got an uphill battle in front of us, but that's what makes it fun. Um, you know, this division we're in has proven to be probably the best if, you know, one of the best, if not the best in baseball over the last five, 10 years. And, um, you know, it's going to continue to be exciting but we've got some really good young players coming, and uh, I look forward to, to watching what they have to offer. Chris wants to know what your favorite ice cream flavor is. <laughs> um, my favorite, uh, Grater's uh, Black Raspberry and and that, that blueberry pie one they do. It's like a seasonal <laughs> one. I knew you'd end me with a softball. That's got to be the last question. <laughs> well, one more, and you wanted to tackle this one. You told me so yourself. Which of the three starter Pokemon would you pick? Oh, I saw that. Somebody put that on Twitter. Yeah. And I figured there's no way Jamie will pass that along to me. But <laughs> as I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old boy, so we've actually had uh, discussions about, you know, Charmander versus Bulbasaur <laughs> versus Squirtle. And they assured me that Charmander of the three is the one with the most strength oh. and the one you should start with. Okay. So. All right. Excellent. Well, Dick, I really appreciate you coming by. It was a pleasure to have you here. And, you know, we... I know the fans are going to love this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. All right, Dick. That's Dick Williams. Thanks a lot. That was Dick Williams. His candor and sincerity, as well as his willingness to share what steps are being taken and returning this Reds team to contention was quite gratifying. I really appreciated the behind-the-scenes stuff that Dick mentioned, the stuff that doesn't necessarily make the headlines or scream as a soundbite, but I really believe it's that kind of stuff, the details and leaving no stone unturned that will make this club and its GM successful. I don't know about you, but I'm suddenly super excited about the future of this Reds franchise. 
If you need more of a Reds fix this month, come by the Holy Grail Banks on Wednesday, November 16th, or the following two Tuesdays in November for the Reds Hot Stove League radio show and Better Off Red Baseball Trivia hosted by yours truly. We have a lot of fun, and I think you would too. Thank yous go out this week to Dick Williams, the Cincinnati Reds, and my main man, Nick Prince, the best technical director in the podcasting game today. Without Nick, this podcast would not exist. Join us again next week for another fantastic guest. This is the Better Off Red Podcast, and I'm Jamie Ramsey. Expect good news. Expect good news.